Welcome to episode one of COVID Conversations. I'm your host, Ann Pluta. Joining me today are my colleagues, Dr. Lawrence Markowitz, Professor of Political Science, and Dr. Eva Budman, Assistant Professor of Philosophy. Lawrence specializes in the study of state building, authoritarianism, and political violence. Eva is an expert in social and political philosophy, feminist and applied ethics, critical race theory, and the effects of incarceration. Now I'm going to let Larry talk a little bit about how authoritarian states have reacted to the public health crisis. Great. Thank you. Uh, Well, before we begin to even think about how autocratic regimes respond and, and, and when we draw on this notion, when we think about the example of Vietnam, it's somewhat perhaps a, an exception because Vietnam has been much more effective than many autocratic regimes a, around the world. And in reality, not all autocracies are effective. They may have fairly good control over information, fairly good control over their police forces. Um, and that's not even true. But uh, many countries have tight control over information, but they're actually very poor in terms of how they implement their policies on the ground. They make decisions in their capitals, but those decisions are oftentimes not carried out. Uh, So the first thing we should do in thinking about drawing a broader example of Vietnam and trying to draw some broader conclusions, separate out the difference between uh, how democratic and autocratic a country is versus how effective their institutions are. And in fact, a lot of autocracies may seem like they would be a bit more effective to combat COVID-19. And it would seem like a simple trade-off, sacrificing freedom for security. But in reality, on the ground, it's a lot messier. I think that's a great point. It's great to illustrate that there may be a veneer of strength that doesn't necessarily carry out in the in the application of policies. Yeah. And on top of that, the uh, the case of Vietnam is sort of a little bit unusual because Vietnam is much more autocratic than most countries. The, the world is actually populated by a number of countries that are kind of in the middle. They're so-called mixed regimes where they're neither really fully democratic or autocratic. They're kind of quasi-democratic. And it's not so much that you have a regime that can just sort of implement or carry out policies on the ground by by mandate. In reality, it's an ongoing, subtle series of struggles for power and it's sort of like the regime or the leaders stay in control or stay in power because they're able to make it an uneven playing field. Not that they have kind of like a total control over all political institutions and total control over society, like say under Stalin. So this makes it more complicated when these regimes are trying to, when autocracies are are trying to address COVID-19, they have to think about problems like all of a sudden, they no longer have, because there's an economic downturn, they no longer have the wealth at their fingertips to hand out as patronage to all the elites around them that might be vying for power. That's a problem that they have to juggle while they're handling the pandemic. They also have to worry about, as they rely more on police controls to maintain the stay-at-home order that they might require, they also have to then think about who's going to, you know, who's going to control the police because that's an open question in many countries. Uh, it, it sort of empowers these police institutions and internal security institutions that, in 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 the subtle struggles for power behind the scenes, they are going to take advantage of this, and this could have an impact on who controls or who has more influence 
in at the at the level of national politics during and after the the crisis. So, in a sense, many many autocracies have to handle or juggle more challenges or additional challenges alongside managing COVID nineteen. Not that we should pity these guys because they're basically autocrats, but uh, but it it makes it a, a a little bit more challenging. And I think the example of Vietnam is a good one because it has clarity, but it, the picture is actually a little bit more messy and, and muddied. And is there some uh, degree of, of smoke and mirrors that these regimes have to in, engage in as well to sort of make it seem like they're have everything under control, that they're managing things well, regardless of what the reality is? Absolutely. And it's, it's a lot of this is uh, are involving smoke and mirrors and some autocratic Countries like Turkmenistan has banned the use of coronavirus as a term. They just deny that it's happening. I don't know how long that's going to work, but because they're they're afraid of the kind of exposure it's going to reveal, the poor quality of their public policies, the lack of you know institutional development in their countries, the poor health infrastructure, the uh, uneven concentrations of wealth that are surrounding the president. So a lot of this is based on on smoke and mirrors. And in some sense, there might be more of a tendency to focus on policing because they don't have the healthcare infrastructure to, to carry out widespread testing. But again, that that's it's easy to conflate state capacity or this, the effectiveness of the, of the state with autocratic regimes. Some autocratic regimes are more effective and more have more of an institutional presence on the ground. And then others are really quite a lot weaker. So it's, it's hard to group them all together as a single category. But, but smoke and mirrors, that's a, a lot of what they do normally is smoke and mirrors to make it seem like they're democratizing, to make it seem like they're providing social social uh, programs for their population. Uh, so in a sense, it's kind of continuing an ongoing practice. And perhaps public health crises like these are a, a little more difficult because there's something that's really happening that people experience on a personal level that perhaps is harder to explain away than maybe something like that is like a foreign enemy or, a, you know, or something like that, where you can make up kind of whatever story you want to make up. And if people are listening to you, they're willing to buy your take. Yes, very much so. Uh, so, so a lot of, a lot of people who, who study autocratic regimes or quasi-democratic regimes are thinking about what is the impact of COVID-19 on the future of democracy or autocracy in an individual country and, and around the globe. Is this gonna shake things up and change how these countries operate? Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective too, that this really will perhaps expose some of the some of the deception that takes place or some of the lack of capacity, as you're saying. Yeah, and all sorts really of, and these countries have all sorts of vulnerabilities that uh, are hidden through these smoke and mirrors that are going to be revealed. But uh, on the other hand, it could bring to light opportunities for leaders to step up and and address it. So a lot of how these countries, a lot of the impact of COVID-19 on these individual regimes will, in a sense, depend on the quality of the leadership. And and it's not necessarily whether it's an autocracy or democracy. It really depends on the nature of the person at the top. But there's no doubt that the spread of COVID-19 opens up vulnerabilities, raises questions about how countries are progressing in terms of whether they're becoming or digressing, whether they're becoming more democratic or less democratic, is it going to derail countries that are beginning to democratize? Uh, is it going to derail democratization in those places like in Armenia or Angola? 
or is it going to further entrench autocratic controls or lead to a greater slide towards autocracy in Hungary or in Nicaragua? I, I think those are very much open questions. Yeah, I think that there's, especially the duration of potentially this crisis makes it different than some other crises that, that come to mind that are more one-off events. This is something that could go on for potentially years uh, until a vaccine is developed. And even once a vaccine is developed, you could still see countries with poor infrastructure and, and low state capacity having a difficult time getting vaccines to the public and administering them in a way that effectively stops the spread. Yeah, I agree. There's real questions about the long-term viability of these of these regimes. And in, in general, their their long-term viability is kind of open and there's open questions. Although although there's increasing literature that shows that in many ways, autocracies or quasi-democratic regimes are much more durable than they than they look on the outside. And even though they look really corrupt mm -hmm. and dysfunctional, there's sort of like an, an internal operating system in which favors are distributed, patronage, corruption flows that maintains these, these regimes. But if, again, if, if COVID-19 leads to this economic downturn and, and progresses for a long time, it just continues to put pressure on these countries. I just want to I, I want to pick up on what Larry said and to just sort of pull two questions out, which are, you know, what does the virus reveal about power? And Larry, you were talking about that a little bit. And also, what will it require to change in how power operates? So I think um, I'm not a political scientist, but I think we can ask both of those questions and talk about both of the questions in terms of, you know, the freedom security pairing and the autocracy, liberal democracy pairing. And I guess the way I've been kind of thinking about that is um, to sort of ask, to ask a question about those dichotomies in the first place. So, you know, when we talk about the distinction between autocracies and liberal democracies, you know, there's a theory that was developed by the French philosopher Michel Foucault in the 20th century called biopower. And um, in this theory, it has, you know, one of its features is something called biopolitics. And without getting too deep into it, it's basically a theory that describes how power is, how power operates by protecting the life of the population. So rather than thinking about this mm -hmm. as a kind of autocratic anomaly that just um, happens when there's a crisis like COVID-19, the idea is that these mechanisms of power were always there right from the beginning and, you know, we're part, we're an integral part of the development of liberal democracy. And so this explains why in the 20th century, all of these European democracies became fascist. So obviously it's not the only explanation for that, but I think right now it's hard not to think about that, to say, well, you know, what do, what is this, what is this global pandemic revealing about how power operates and not just in the shape of government. So, you know, do people vote and how do people get elected, but how power operates in the day to day. So, you know, the movement of people's actual bodies, like where can they be and who's controlling where they can be when and how they can move about work or not work the kinds of activities that they do. So this is sort of a different register of power that's less about the kind of regime, but it is a comment on, you know, this distinction that I think it's very tempting to make if you're based in the United States to say, well, the U.S. has this special kind of democracy and other places are autocratic and 
the U.S. is this place where we have um, where we have freedom. Um, not to say that that's not true, and there are significant differences between places where there is a functioning democracy and places where there isn't a functioning democracy. But I've been finding the theory of biopower to be pretty helpful, and I'll, I'll just give an example. So. I'm Canadian. I'm from Montreal. And in Montreal, what's happening is there that's a, you know, Canada is more of a is more of like a welfare democracy setup than the United States is. And in Quebec, they have started, so there's a stay-at-home order, and they've started giving people tickets for gathering outside in public. And the the tickets are very expensive. So if you get a ticket for gathering outside in public with people who are not in your household, it costs more than a thousand dollars Canadian. And I don't know how common this has become, but th- there have been, you know, there, there has been some reporting on that phenomenon. And some advocacy groups have been saying that they're targeting unusual families and same-sex couples more than other people because they don't appear to be um, the kinds of people who would be in the same household. And so they're more likely to get a ticket. And that is, that's not like, oh, what kind of voting are people, are people voting or not voting? That's sort of an on the ground mechanism of biopower that's controlling, you know, the life of the population, but along the way is making a decision about who gets to live and who is going to be, who's going to be left to die. So part of the theory is it's about, you know, divisions in society that protect a kind of vulnerable populace from elements that might make it, that might infect it. So obviously this is sort of a different framework, but I've been thinking about coronavirus along those terms. It's not a perfect theory for thinking about it, but basically the point is to say, when something like this happens, you see what kind of power is at work and how it operates in the mechanisms of day-to-day life and how the population is ostensibly preserved through these mechanisms that dictate what kinds of movement certain elements of or demographics in the population are going to do or not do. And then normalizes and disciplines those movements by saying, oh, well, we're going to fine you if you look gay, um, or you're not sort of engaging in the kinds of embodied movements that a normal productive populace would engage in. Now, obviously, flaws with this theory, but it's sort of the idea is to um, destabilize that dichotomy between, oh, well, there are non-democratic regimes and there are democratic regimes. And to say, well, actually, democratic nation states have these sorts of discipline and biopolitics built into their um, their mode of operation. And power is something that isn't just you know embodied in one person. It happens through these mechanisms in society that people internalize and then their movements are controlled by it. And I think that, you know, it can be helpful to an extent for thinking about what is happening under COVID-19 right now. Yeah. And I think that, sorry, I was just, I think that's great that that really actually speaks very much to what Larry was saying, as far as, you know, there being these gradations, gradations in the uh, type of regime and not thinking of it as a dichotomy. And this is just another way to kind of conceptualize that same thing. It's not just democracy or not. There's a lot more to it than democracy or not. And so this is just another and one way thing of thinking that about Eva that. So points out is, is uh, I'll just sort of say a quick thing is that uh, it, that Eva points out quite, quite well, how power flows. It sort of flows within these, within a political system and it's intimately linked to inequality unequal access to resources, unequal access to medical care, 
And a lot of people in the U.S. certainly experience that, uh, and and that's that's true in in the U.S. as much as it may be in in other countries. One one difference is not so much about regime, though, is about the wealth of a country and how much it spends on its social welfare system. If a country, say, spends nine percent of its GDP or ten percent of its GDP on social welfare programs, education and health, and other areas and pensions and so forth, um, then it's better able to sort of distribute this and uh, this wealth more broadly. But many countries around the world in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, or in Central Asia or Southeast Asia, they spend 0.5% of their GDP or zero or 1% of their GDP at the most on social welfare programs. And so that exacerbates a lot of the things that Eva was noting. Right. Like who... Um who is considered worthy of protection in the population and who is left to fall through the cracks, which is, you know, dramatized or exacerbated by what programs are in place. And um, I don't know, this seems like a good segue to talk about freedom and security and that um, that kind of trade-off. Is it a good time to talk about that? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so- I think that'd be um, perfect. So I think that it's very, you know, I've taught political philosophy a lot in um, different at different schools in the U.S. And when I first started teaching in the U.S., I was really surprised that um, I think I was encountering a sort of libertarianism that's just sort of in the ether in the U.S. for the first time. And I still have to say that I'm, you know, I'm still wrapping my mind around it after, you know, a decade living in the United States. But um I think this sort of speaks to this conversation about welfare and, you know, welfare states and how much how much support governments have for citizens and how that support is conceptualized. And so I think in the United States, the trend is, even though this is a, a democracy premised on these sort of classical principles of, of liberalism, freedom is, I would say conceptualized in the U.S. as libertarian freedom, so individual freedom to do what you want to do so long as it isn't harming somebody else, versus other concepts of liberal freedom, which are not just about being free to do you or be you and do whatever you want to do without interruption, but are premised on, you know, these ideas of human rationality and being able to make choices with a sort of universal concept of humanity in mind. So that's comes from the philosopher Immanuel Kant. And now we don't have to get into his ideas that deeply to say that, you know, there are different ways that we can think about the concept of freedom. And it doesn't just mean doing what you want. But in the United States, there is a deep trend where freedom is understood in a kind of on a libertarian definition of freedom. So, you know, it's a definition of freedom that understands freedom to be something that applies to individuals who get to make decisions about their bodies, um, where their bodies belong to them as property. So, but I think that, uh, and that also allows us to distinguish between places like the U.S. where individuals are free and other places where you know, the government limits freedom by imposing taxes or whatever. Now, obviously, this is an exaggerated description of, you know, American political culture, like there's more going on. And certainly right now, there is a, a huge movement for universal health care for changing the way the system works. But nonetheless, this is a trend in the United States. So I think right now, 
it in some way it seems like a false debate to say well you either have freedom or you have security and so places that have less freedom you know maybe covid-19 will be managed in a better way as larry was saying uh, autocratic regimes don't necessarily do a better job and i also think that the trade-off isn't necessarily that clear because it really depends on how we define freedom you know is freedom freedom from government intervention mm-hmm. of any kind including taxes or is freedom an ability to exercise rationality from the perspective of humanity writ large um which is hardly a radical perspective this is like classical liberalism and i think that um understanding freedom as just being free from government intervention is kind of what created the insecurity that we're in right now in the first place i mean there's the insecurity of the virus but then there's the insecurity of like you know huge numbers of people who don't have adequate access to healthcare uh limited resources and materials and you know ventilators masks swabs to do tests like why are we not doing testing on a large scale so to me that's like the reason that we have extra insecurity is because of a kind of limited understanding of freedom as individual freedom that is supported by a sort of free market capitalism rather than understanding freedom as consistent with you know some kind of welfare structure that gets support from you know that gets government support and where the, that government support is then is supported by the population and then it seems to justify an authoritarian response to the crisis because there is a baseline insecurity because you know any sort of government involvement is seen as a uh, an inhibition is seen as a limitation on freedom do you see what i'm saying Yeah, I I think that's it's absolutely a great point. I think that uh this is something that I've encountered uh in political science, you know, many times this idea that freedom can be conceptualized as being free to be able to live a healthy, educated life that's provided to you through taxes or or however the government mechanism is. It's not it's very uh uniquely American to think of freedom as being I actually wasn't going to talk about this in this way, but I think in the US, freedom is premised on property, capital accumulation. And in the history of the United States, that was able to happen because of exploitation. So, and that exploitation requires violence because you're coercing people to give over their land and their bodies and their resources, which like most people don't want to do. So, I think it's it's this is an interesting moment to think to ourselves okay well if we're thinking of this as a trade-off where did our sense of freedom come from and was it really that secure is it really that secure to have a sense of freedom that's built on sort of massive exploitation of certain demographics in the population I think my hope is that you know this covid-19 gives us an opportunity to kind of see that revealed rather than um just sort of say oh this is a crisis we're going to protect our individual selves and hunker down and you know try try not to think too much on a broad scale i think this is a really good opportunity to do some learning about how power operates how, why things are the way they are and how we might be able to do things differently and certainly i'm seeing movement groups trying to create forms of freedom in alternative kinds of safety or security and to find security in collective movement 
activity and organization rather than isolation. So I'm curious to see what's going to happen. I agree. I think that these are the rethinking our relationship to government, not only in the U.S., but more globally. I think these are going to be these relationships and our expectations of what we want from our governments are, are going to be have greatly affected by uh, the pandemic. The simplistic trade-off of, of security and freedom is is not one that I think will be very durable. I think most people will start to think more broadly about what they want from government, why this has happened, and why their government has or has not been able to respond. It's very possible, especially in country, non-democratic countries, as well as democratic ones, we will see more mobilization that, you know, uh, social movement theories clearly point to when you have a single event, it can serve as a focal point for public dissent. And uh, so these are not academic questions. They're, these are questions about rethinking notions of freedom and notions of our relationship to government and what we want from our governments. I think these are these are things that are being thought about and perhaps will be acted on by mass publics uh, more around the globe, um, not in a global movement necessarily, but certainly uh, there will probably be some degree of social mobilization once the social distancing restrictions are, are relaxed because people are rethinking what they expect from their governments. Yeah, I think that is a, a great point that there's definitely going to be an opportunity here for people to sit back and say to themselves, what about, as you you know said, what about government? put us in the, uh, either a great place or a not so great place. And how, what does that mean uh, going forward about how I, I think about government? If you're paying taxes, you're voting people in, you want them to hopefully do things that are in your best interest so that you don't necessarily wind up in a position where your country has to suffer both uh, public health and great economic harm because right. of and I think something that, like um, a global pandemic. What's so interesting from political philosophy perspective is we're seeing that the limitations of these theories that have justified a lot of, um, you know, liberal democratic governments, you know, social contract theory, which broadly speaking is, you know, the idea that on our own, we won't have the protection we need. And so we need, we need to give up our right to violence to the nation state so that the nation state can um, protect the population um, so and protect us from one another. And, you know, I think, you know, this is sort of, this was very influential in, you know, creating the place, you know, governments like the U.S. government. And, um, but the social contract theory is based on an 18th century thought experiment. It's not based on any like empirical conclusions about human nature. It was like a bunch of guys in the 18th century, you know, speculating about why government was justified. And I think right now we're seeing like, okay, well, the government has both the right to violence and through like the police and stuff. And it's not doing that much to protect us from the threats that we're actually facing. So maybe we need a different justification <laughs> and different framing of government and political power. And this is, I think, as people who study power from a social science and humanities perspective, this is a really an interesting time for us to be thinking about all this stuff. Absolutely. It's a definitely a natural experiment as a political yeah, scientist. Yeah, and, and, love, if, love and to looking say. at it from a, a more of a global perspective, I would not, I mean, I think there's a lot of interrelated ac uh, experiences here that could lead to more mobilization. And a lot of it depends on, 
from country to country, how leaders respond. A lot of it depends on international pressure, the degree to which the international community is actually going to encourage or try to uh, dissuade publics from, from pressuring their governments. And there's a lot of uh, convincing theory that, that argues that when you have similar experiences across countries, that protests spread, like in the Arab Spring. So, and, and putting on top of all of these things, the fact that we have a global econo economic downturn, which puts a lot of pressure on leaders. I think that, mo I think most autocratic regimes oh. and democratic regimes are not only concerned about the welfare of their republics, but are also worried about effectively addressing these, addressing the pandemic because the long-term future of their of their of their regime is really in question. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's it's definitely shines a very bright light on government um, in a way that's likely to make many people in government. Right. Uh, I think that, that, little, that's a little, a little more of a, a a better way to put it, rather than, <laughs> than, than multiple regimes around the world are in question. But uh, yeah. All right. Well, I think that uh, that's a great um, conversation here. Do either of you guys want to offer any kind of um, concluding thoughts or, or ideas to kind of uh, leave us with? That was my kind of concluding thought that a lot of the long term consequences of COVID-19 on on quasi democratic or autocratic regimes around the globe will will, in a sense, depend on how leadership responds the nature of uh, mobile, the mobilization of mass publics. Yeah. I mean, I kind of already gave you my, my spiel, so I don't really have a concluding, a new concluding point. Yeah. I mean, that's a good one. I think this idea that, you know, yet to kind of, it, it could be very significant yet to be revealed. Time will tell kind of. I think that just the sort of culmination of the conversation in how this, this uh, global pandemic is really creating a, this impetus for movement activity and for um, people to understand the kind of power that's at work and to challenge um, to challenge government responses and for that response to spread <laughs> from country to country. And it's possible that we'll see some really big changes. I think at this point, none of us can really know. But if political science is saying that things could go in that direction, then that's encouraging and inspiring, if a bit scary because none of us know how this is going to happen and whether this is going to involve, you know, big upheaval and what that will look like. But I am hoping that, you know, in a place like the United States where there is massive inequality and not, and, and where there isn't really, you know, welfare structures that have the kind of support that they should have for a country with the kind of wealth that the United States has, that we'll see some change in those structures and ways of operating. Of course, there's no way to know, and maybe I'm being too hopeful and even <laughs> wanting that to happen, but um, but I guess those are some concluding remarks, just, you know, from, from the perspective of people who are in the United States right now, um, thinking about how all of this applies to us and what we're going to see in the coming, in the coming months. Yeah. And in our, our third episode, we're going to talk about the, um, the welfare state and what it provides and what it doesn't provide and what kind of expectations we might see from a crisis like this as far as bringing about change in the welfare state, specifically in the United States, uh, when compared to other Western 
um, democracies and what they're providing for their citizens in this time. So maybe I, you know, I also will have more uh, to say about yeah, that right. down so the road. So thinking about a concluding point, kind of piggybacking on what Edith just said, in a sense, we don't know really what how this is going to play out, especially as it begins to spread across Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Uh, the widespread effects in these parts of the globe, I mean, we're that's just emerging now because the disease has not fully it, it only it only now is reaching those parts of the of the of the world so i suspect the summer and the fall of 2020 will bring a lot of these a lot of these questions that we're posing make them a little bit more salient and we very well may not have answers for another few years